0: Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, assistant editor. I'm joined today by Tim Wyatt, digital editor, and Hattie Williams, news reporter. Coming up in this week's episode, we're talking refugees, Archbishop Welby in the Holy Land, and we interview Dave Tomlinson about his new book. The government is to settle 130 more refugee children from Europe under the Dubs Amendment than it said it would previously. Hattie Williams has been following this story. Hattie, has the government had a big change of heart? Uh,
1: unfortunately not, Ed. Uh, this is more of a miscalculation on the government's part. So the government have agreed to resettle um, 350 refugees under the dub scheme. Now, originally this was 3,000, but that was cut. Um, the government said that they'd done enough for refugees uh, through their other schemes, including the Vulnerable Persons Scheme. Uh, However, they obviously miscalculated uh, some of their figures because they've now decided that this figure will rise from 350 to 480, so 130 more uh, child refugees, specifically under the Dubs Amendment scheme. So although this is a a welcome increase, it's not actually really what um, campaigners and charities were looking for. Um, so I spoke to uh, Christian Aid this week um, and the, the senior UK political advisor, Simon Kirkland, said, this is a small bit of welcome news, but it's nowhere near enough to play our part in meeting the needs of people currently seeking refuge from war.
2: So just to clarify, the Dubs Amendment was originally uh, an amendment to the Immigration Act that was passed last year, I think, when um, Lord Dubbs, who is a Labour peer and himself a former child refugee from World War II, um, uh, added in this, a thing onto the amendment, which was uh, hoping to resettle, as you say, up to 3,000 in total um, unaccompanied children from mainland Europe into the UK.
1: That's right. So the Immigration Act specified... Um, a specific number, but that number itself was up for debate. So, as I say, originally um, that was 3,000, um, but after some due consideration from the government, that was rather quietly reduced to um, 350 in February, uh, much to the dismay of uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury and among others, um, who uh, expressed various uh, degrees of shock and sadness at, at this uh, news.
0: And there's been a report published this week by the All Party Parliamentary Group on refugees.
1: That's right. So they were quite critical um, of the government's approach to refugee protection. They've suggested that they've unintentionally created a two-tier system, um, either through uh, asylum or resettlement. And as a result, that had left hundreds of of vulnerable people, um, refugees, homeless and destitute. And and in turn, that had... um, Prevented integration within society.
2: Of course, famously in two thousand and fifteen, I believe uh, the then Prime Minister David Cameron made a commitment to take twenty thousand refugees by the end of that Parliament, which was thought to be twenty twenty. Um, I think they're on track for that. They've it's, uh, is it five thousand seven hundred have so far come under the Vulnerable Persons Resettlement Scheme.
1: That's right. Yeah, um, and that's obviously separate from those who came in under asylum, um, which is about fifty thousand. Um, so the UK are on target, but I think there's some dispute as to which um, schemes are prioritising which people. So the vulnerable persons scheme is obviously very important, but I think the point that uh, campaigners of the Dubs amendment are trying to make is that the children are the most vulnerable, and also it's it's where refugees are being um, resettled from. So. Um, the promise from david cameron was originally uh, from camps on the outskirts of jordan and lebanon um, but obviously there is some concern for refugees who've actually managed to reach europe and uh, many of them who are on their own uh, without parents or, or guardians which is obviously a concern
2: and there's actually a third scheme of course as well as well as the dubs amendment and the vulnerable persons resettlement scheme there's the community sponsorship scheme which has been Piloted by a family of Syrian refugees who are living in Lambeth Palace but I understand that's actually been quite so to get off the mark and there is only, at, at, as, uh, as we speak perhaps a handful of families mm-hmm. in total who have come through that scheme um, in the UK at the present
1: Sure, so there's about three I think at the moment um, as you say, uh, one family with the Archbishop I think there's another in Manchester and I believe um, the Salvation Army have also organised the resettlement of another family um, so although that's successful um in some respects in that those families have been looked after and and that has that process has been um completed in some cases um it's obviously a very small uh, proportion um but i think i think there's quite a lot of bu- bureaucracy around it um a lot of red tape to get through in order to actually resettle a family and and, and welcome them in the uk um, but hopefully um it's it's uh, we're sort of catching up with ourselves so hopefully um, a few more families um, will be resettled in the next few months. When I spoke to one of the families um, earlier this year they said that they're hoping for at least 200 to be resettled in the next year which is obviously a huge figure so hopefully um, something near that number will be achieved.
0: We saw the Church of England advertising this week for a refugee coordinator, is that part of a drive to increase the number of churches to taking in refugee families?
2: Yes, I believe that's right. Yeah, that's this is a part time role that will be based in Church House in Westminster. And this will be working with that third avenue, the community sponsorship scheme, um, attempting to uh, roll out what has been learnt. I think, both at Lambeth Palace, but also um, more centrally with the Home Office to cross to the diocese and, and hopefully seeing many more parishes and other Christian groups take up the chance and, and say, yeah, we can put up the housing, the funding and take in a family of refugees ourselves, which is how the, the scheme, is, scheme works.
1: I think it's important to differentiate as well that this particular scheme is sponsored by the community, so they do actually pay for much of the um, care and uh, accommodation, food and donated clothes and so on, um, which is why uh, those particular schemes aren't actually counted within the 20,000. So that is separate. So obviously, hopefully, um, those figures will increase, but it won't actually count towards the government figures. <music>
2: One of the key concerns of a lot of campaigners, um, particularly in this country, has been that the government's focus on only taking refugees from the camps uh, in Jordan and Lebanon um, is meaning that some vulnerable Christian refugees will not be eligible for for this because uh, anecdotal evidence is that they're preferring not to go and stay in refugee camps but where they've fled Syria, they're living among the the native populations. Um, This is actually one of the key things that Justin Welby was trying to find out in a recent trip he's actually on at the moment in the Holy Land. He started off in in Jordan, um, Gavin Drake reports for us this week, um, and where he actually met up with um, King Abdullah II, who has um, assured him that they will continue their efforts to protect the presence of Christians in the Middle East.
1: I understand that uh, the Archbishop also went to Gaza this week, which was unexpected. Do we know anything more about that?
0: Yeah, from reports, it sounds like he received last minute security clearance for him and a, and a couple of aides to get to Gaza. I think it wasn't in the original itinerary because they just didn't think it would be possible. But I mean, there's a very small Christian community in in Gaza um, who, who obviously have, have had a difficult time with it. So I'm sure they'll have been very encouraged by his presence there.
2: Yeah, that's right. After um, the, a day or so he spent in Jordan at the refugee camp and meeting the king, he, um, he's then moved on into um, Jerusalem where he's the guest of the Archbishop in Jerusalem, the Ancan Archbishop, um, the Most Reverend Sahail Dawani, who's in charge of a diocese which includes uh, Jordan, Palestine, Israel, Syria and Lebanon. I think a key another key reason for his visit to the region, as he said, is to encourage and show solidarity with the the few Christian communities that still remain, both in Gaza, in Israel itself, and also in the West Bank.
0: Archbishop Welby has also been accompanied by the UK's chief rabbi on the trip. And there's some powerful images of them praying at the Western Wall and, and visiting the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Jerusalem. It seems having to strike a balance of visiting Israeli and Palestinian areas these trips can be fraught with um, danger or difficulty in terms of how they're perceived. There was a trip back in 2013, his, his first trip to the Holy Land, which was officially a private visit, which, which received some negative coverage because he didn't visit Bethlehem, things like that, some Christians... Um, Uh, reacted negatively to that so it seems this time Lambeth Palace has really made sure that they're covering every base they're giving it 12 days a good amount of time to cover a lot of ground.
2: That's right I mean I went to a um, a press briefing in advance of this trip uh, a month ago where they were explaining a bit about his itinerary and where he'd be going and it was clear that this had been in the works for a long time some of the archbishop's staff had done preparatory trips out to the Holy Land to kind of test the waters and set up contacts um, and so once they've so he's uh, on, uh, on Sunday he's going to um, be installed as an Episcopal canon at the Anglican Cathedral in Jerusalem, um, and is taking part in various ecumenical services with the different Christian communities that are still there, Anglican and not. And then uh, and then the last section of the trip is is more political. So he's got uh, meetings lined up with both the um, uh, president of the Palestinian National Authority, Mahmoud Abbas uh the president of israel and he's also hoping to meet with the israeli prime minister binyamin netanyahu um, and he's going to make a big set piece speech at um, a peace and reconciliation center i believe in tel aviv and it'll be interesting to see what the top lines of that speech and other questions and answer sessions he's going to have with the journalists there will be and that at the same time or in fact just before um the archbishop has been in in one part of the holy land uh, pope francis is in another um, he completed a much shorter a two-day trip to Egypt um, which took place on Friday and Saturday last week uh, and there's coverage uh, in the paper of that. Um, again quite a similar thing trying to juggle different things so there was some politics he met up with the president of, of Egypt, uh, there was some ecumenical work um, with the, the Coptic Orthodox Church and also the much smaller local Catholic Church and there was also some interfaith uh, uh, visiting there he had went spoke at a peace conference um uh, with the grand imam of al-Azhar, one of the, the leading Sunni clerics, and made some really interesting comments about um, the importance of religious figures in curbing violence among the extremist fringe, and saying how you know, no religion allows you to kill in the
0: name of God. The Reverend Dave Tomlinson is vicar of St Luke's Holloway in London, an author of books including The Post-Evangelical and How to Be a Bad Christian. His new book is called Black Sheep and Prodigals – an antidote to black and white religion. The publisher, Hodder, says that the book sets out to present a more contemporary and humane approach to faith, drawing on honest doubt, common sense and spiritual experience. I spoke to Dave Tomlinson about the book in his vicarage garden. Can I start by asking who you hoped would read Black Sheep and Prodigals? Is it just those who are kind of on the margins of the church or do you think, would you like it to influence the church hierarchy the leaders?
3: You know, I think for probably the last 25 years or something like that Um, since since i started a group called holy joes in a pub in south london uh, for sort of church dropouts and the likes i think a lot of the focus of my work and ministry has been to people who are sort of hanging on to faith by their fingernails you know and, and right all on the edge and and over those years you know i've had so many people come and want to ask me questions and talk, have conversations they don't feel they can have. I mean, including quite a lot of clergy, actually, who don't feel they can tell their church members or, you know, other fellow church leaders about the questions that they're having and the doubts that they've got. Um, And and they feel quite alarmed, I suppose, by some of their own doubts and being able to have that conversation with someone in a confidential way um, is helpful. So, You know, the Post-Evangelicum, the first book I wrote and a number of other things that I've written and said have been geared to those sort of people. Being here in this parish and working as a parish priest and discovering the amazing opportunities that brings you into the lives of people who never come near church, who probably never will, and I don't really think that matters too much to me. um, Suddenly I I became much more switched on to this sort of whole horde of people outside of the church um who who do have some form of faith or or they're on some kind of spiritual journey or they want to explore these things so how to be a bad christian and the bad christians manifesto and this book are all more geared to those people on the outside of the church but who i think are sort of um orientated towards some kind of faith obviously also, the people who are who are struggling on the edges on the inside of the church. But yes, I, I suppose, you know, to come back to your question, I think, of course, I I feel passionately about the church. You know, I mean, lots of people say to me, "Well, with your views and your journey, what are you doing in the church? You're a vicar, for goodness sake. What are you doing, you know? And I have to say, well, I do have, actually, a foot firmly planted in both camps. I, I love the church, and I want the church to be the testimony to God's love and grace that I think it ought to be and can be, and oftentimes is, but sometimes isn't. We talk a lot
0: in the book about the importance of myth and how things can be true without necessarily being factual or historical. Why Hmm. do you think many Christians are so fearful of questioning the literal interpretations of the
3: Bible? It's an ironic thing, you see, I think, but the the kind of... um, The reaction that, if you go back 100, 150 years ago, the reaction to modernism, to the modern world, to the Enlightenment culture that was sort of coming in, uh, the the, the reaction to that from quite a significant section of the church was to try to oppose it, but to oppose it on that ground. In other words, to want to make uh, the Bible stand up in the world of, you know, scientific fact and so on and so forth. And it, I think it was a seductive sort of pathway that, that that was drawn, and that's where the whole notion of fundamentalism emerged, that there are these fundamentals that is trying to sort of really compete with uh, the kind of basic fundamental truths, if you like, or facts of, of science and so on and so forth. And so I think that we've now had you know over 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 a hundred years of being bred into this idea that the bible has to be a historical book in the same sense that that the actual notion of history as we have it now is of course a really modern idea and so you know the idea of kind of um, verifiable facts and uh all, all of that sort of notion has is, is, is really come out of the Enlightenment revolution. And if you go back to the days of biblical times, the days of Jesus, well that, that wasn't there. Truth didn't really work in that way. And so truth could be just as powerfully conveyed and understood and connected with through story and through myth and metaphor and so on as it could through something that we nowadays would call fact. I just don't think that Jesus and, and his followers and people of that era had a notion of facts as we have them today. So I think that the whole approach to the Bible of, of, of feeling that its truth hinges, and, it, and this is how people feel so strongly about it, that it all hinges on it being literally true. Um, I don't read books of poetry to, uh, you know, from the point of view of thinking, is this historically true, This what's being said in this poem? The truthfulness of the poem is doesn't lie in whether this is actually telling something that really happened or not. So I think that it gets confusing because obviously then, you know, people want some things to be literally true, even if others aren't. And then you get onto a kind of sliding scale of of what will really matter to you. Um, but I think f- for me, uh, uh, you know, someone who... Well, there's, there's, a, there's a chapter in, in the new book which is, is about, you know, I believe in, in poetry, art and rock and roll. And that's a chapter that really is about, in, in theological jargon, divine revelation. And what I'm saying is that I find God is revealed... To me, very powerfully, through things in in the wider culture, through things like poetry and music and so on, not instead of the Bible. in fact, I find that that the way in which God speaks to me through uh, th- through through wider cultural issues actually helps me in the way in which I approach the Bible and and hear God speaking to me through the Bible.
0: I mean the book also questions things like Was there an empty tomb? And you say, arguments about the empty tomb leave me as cold as the grave. (laughs) The resurrection is a mysterious reality, totally different from the mere resuscitation of a crucified body. Um, And how would you respond to those who might say you're you're rehashing a kind of 1960s liberalism that feeds on doubt and doesn't proclaim enough, that there is scholarship around more recently that affirms things like the empty tomb and the historicity of, of much of the Gospels?
3: Well, I'd, 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 I mean, I think the fact of the matter is that there isn't very much at all that can affirm the historicity of much of the Gospel account, many of the Gospel accounts. They're, they're, they're just, It just doesn't exist. I think we, we know for sure that there was a person called Jesus. Um, we know for sure that, that he was arrested and tried and, and crucified by the Romans. Um, there, there are things that are verifiable from other f- sources um in in the past so therefore can be seen as being more kind of historical in that sense um but actually i i I, I think that we're misjudging the the motive and the and the, the whole style of writing that you've got in the gospels really that i don't think as i say the gospels were not written in the 20th 21st or even the 20th century or even the 19th century with 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 the notion of history that we have today my point is not that i want to argue that they didn't happen my point is to say it really doesn't matter to me i think that as i said in the book the evidence of the risen christ does not lie to me in an empty tomb the evidence of it lies in hearts on fire with the presence and the Spirit of Christ today. That's what we see in the Gospels. That these men and women were transformed by what happened.
0: You say you don't seek to convert people, but in the book you describe yourself as a liberal evangelist. When
3: I talk about being a liberal evangelist, which actually came from when we launched How To Be A Bad Christian in the beer tent at Greenbelt and, uh, and somebody said to me afterwards, you're on fire Dave, you know, you're like a liberal evangelist and I thought, mm, I quite like that idea uh, because I think that the problem with a lot of liberalism is that it has become rather wishy-washy or, or, it's, or it's very kind of um, heady and intellectual and cerebral uh and so you have all these kind of clever arguments and so on um but but i don't think that's what really the world needs um it's it's important i think the way we the arguments that we have the propositions that we hold to are important but not in this sense i think what matters is the kind of lives that we're living and um so i think that i care passionately about the fact that we're living in a world which in some ways at the moment feels like it's going in the wrong way. It almost feels like we've gone into reverse in certain ways, with some of the mean-spirited um, you know, not just little Britain, but but little me kind of concerns. Um, and the whole thing of building walls. I mean, we should have long got. We, should, you know, we pulled down the Berlin Wall, and that was one of the days that will always stand out in my life. Seeing that wall come down. We we don't want to be building walls. We're building bridges, and creating a world that um, reflects the goodness and kindness of what I find in God. And so I I, I do feel passionately about this. I think all the time I'm dealing with people. <clears throat> Excuse me, whose lives are screwed up and messed up in one way or another. So, to me, the gospel, the good news, is about transformation, but it's not conversion from one faith to another or, you know, to a faith in the sense of a set of beliefs or joining this club that goes to church on Sunday or something. So, I think that there's a message to be proclaimed, and I think that needs to be proclaimed with evangelistic zeal um but i think it needs to be some you know a heart passion that's engaged with a critical thinking faith that is unafraid of of hard questions and doubts and so on and so forth
0: have we got any favorite quotes from this week's issue tim
2: Yeah, there's um, an interesting column by Paul Valerie who talks about, for the first time, he's not sure who he's going to vote for at this election, having been a fairly regular Labour voter. Um, He says, Whenever I enter a polling booth, I feel the shade of my grandfather at my shoulder. He was a steel worker who pioneered the trade union's penny-a-week health insurance scheme, which was the forerunner of the NHS. I'm not sure, however, what grandad would have made of Jeremy Corbyn. And after explaining some of his doubts about Mr Corbyn, he concludes with... I have to admit that, for the very first time, I am considering upsetting the ghost of my grandfather.
1: Mine is from the Bishop of Gloucester, the Right Reverend Rachel Tweek, who writes in our comment section this week about uh, young people needing uh, more help to overcome body image anxiety. And she writes, an image is not about external appearance alone. It is about an artist crafter attempting to reflect something more propo- profound about real identity. God, however, is the perfect crafter, the creator. So the image that God creates in humankind is good.
2: That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find news, analysis, comment, book reviews and more on our website. You can also find our latest subscription offers at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music this week was by Sought After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode. And thanks for listening.